This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 29th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The elections involving Thomas Jefferson may end up offering important lessons for the political climate we face today. Robert McDonald is author of Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time. We discussed the elections of 1796, 1800, and 1804, and the partisanship that emerged in the early American Republic. George Washington became president in 1788. Yeah, he was elected in 1788. And decided that after two terms in office, and he had to be cajoled into staying for a second term, he decided he was going to leave. Was it health or what, what made him decide that? I think, you know, Washington, uh, as, as people in office oftentimes did back then, protested frequently that he would rather be at home. He would rather be um, with his family, on his farm, with his books. Um, I think Washington actually meant it. A lot of times uh, people in office said that to... Uh, I'm going to spend more time with my family. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and also to cultivate this image of someone who wasn't seeking power. I mean, power was a scary thing in the 18th century. The last person you would want to give it to is someone who actually sought it. So uh, that was oftentimes the pronouncement that uh, a person in, in office might make. Washington was convinced by both Hamilton and Jefferson in 1792 um, to, to, to run again, to, to stand for office once more, to make himself available for re-election. And, uh, and he did. And I think the reason for that was that only Washington in the sort of fractious political environment of the early 1790s could earn the trust of, of all and unify the American people. Um, but by 1796, uh, Washington, I, I think he thought two terms was enough, and he had done enough, and he was getting older. And indeed, if he had run for a third term, I'm sure he would have been reelected. And uh, he would have died in office in December of 1799, establishing a very different precedent than the, uh, than, you know, the one that he did, in fact, establish by, by leaving office voluntarily. So what did running for president look like in 1796? This is Thomas Jefferson's first election. Right. He was facing John Adams. But what did that, what did that, how did that, how did that look? Well, you know, I should probably uh, correct both the word that I used and one that you just used. Running for office doesn't of quite describe it, right? Uh, you, you, you might be advanced you for, for office. Election. You could stand for election. Your, your name would be put forward, but you didn't campaign. Uh, you didn't make promises in in the political culture of the 18th century and even the early 19th century. Uh, the idea that you would seek office was, I mean, that's just something you wouldn't do. So that's kind of how Jim Webb ran for president. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. The The idea is that, uh, you know, you're, you put your name out there. But when Thomas Jefferson was being advanced for the presidency in 1796, uh, he was retired at Monticello. Um, you'll remember that he had resigned a couple of years earlier as Secretary of State. Um, while he was back at Monticello, he claimed to take no newspapers. Um, he claimed that his focus was merely on his farm and his books and, uh, you know, enjoying the quiet life of um, this, this statesman who had withdrawn from the public scene. 
And it's, it's interesting, if you read his letters from that period, people will oftentimes ask him about contemporary events, and he'll begin by responding about, you know, the success of his rutabagas and peas and, you know, other things that he's cultivating in his garden. And then he'll launch into, um, you know, a, a fairly concise and uh, detailed analysis of the events of, of the particular time. And I, th- I think he was up on his news more than he wanted people to believe. So what did that election look like? I mean, give us a sense of like where the states were. And this was, as, as you mentioned, a, f- a very fractured time. Right. There were problems of debt. There were, were large swaths of the newly American public who were very dissatisfied with how had they had been treated. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when the Constitution was ratified and when George Washington became president, um, one of the things that wasn't anticipated was the development of political parties. Um, Parties are really an extra constitutional feature of our government. They did emerge quickly in the 1790s, in part in response to some of the the proposals of Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. Um, Hamilton proposed a national bank that wasn't explicitly authorized by the Constitution. He also um, proposed that the national government assume the Revolutionary War debts of the states. Um, This and other things generated controversy that that caused Americans to fall out along uh, party lines. Some people uh, allied themselves with the group that would become known as the Jeffersonian Republicans. Other people, uh, Hamilton, Adams, their followers, called themselves Federalists. And by 1796, um, you have, you know, these two fairly well-established camps, and they are debating, among other things, the size and the scope of government. You know, what does the Constitution actually allow? And which of these two parties or factions um, best reflected uh, a, a true commitment to the U.S. Constitution? A debate that ended just last year. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So uh, Jefferson was not elected. So as, as I said, the Constitution did not anticipate uh, the existence of political parties. And the election of a president uh, was something that um, people anticipated would not be an organized affair. The idea was that um, all the state electors, the people um, elected to make this decision um, by any given state, sometimes electors were selected by popular vote, but sometimes they were selected by state legislatures. Um, Electors would each have two votes and one vote they were free to cast for whomever they wished. Another vote had to be cast for someone who was not from their state. You see, the presumption was that um, people would always try to support their you know, state's favorite son, um, but by requiring that one of their votes had to go to someone from beyond their state, the hope was that characters of a, of a true natural national stature would emerge. And of course, the selection of vice president was a, was a different affair. It was because uh, the person who came in second would be automatically the vice president. And I can, I mean, if you put that into a modern context, one can imagine a vice president, Donald Trump, really running down the president on a daily basis. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we all we think nowadays about the, the the vice president is a part of the administration. When Thomas Jefferson came in second, and it was a close second, you know, Adams only outpolled him by a couple electoral votes. Um, 
Jefferson was not a part of the Adams administration. He was not consulted um, on a regular basis by by John Adams. Um, his constitutional job, as he saw it, was to preside over the Senate, and and that's what he did. And and frankly, that's what John Adams did when he served as vice president for George Washington. Would Adams at that time have viewed himself as part of the Washington administration? I think that was that was his anticipation. But again, you know, one of the the most interesting things about the Washington presidency is that Washington is established a precedent for all the presidents to follow. And, and one of the, the precedents that, that he seems to establish is this understanding of, of the vice president and someone who is there ready to step in should he be incapacitated or pass away, um, but also someone who presides over the Senate. And, um, and that's what John Adams did. So, uh, you know, there were times when Washington would have meetings and I, John Adams would expect to, 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 to be included, and, and he wasn't, um, in part because Washington didn't think that that was, that was proper. From the election of 1796 to uh, the election of 1800, what had transpired that had Jefferson decide that he would, all, he would stand uh, for office. Well, the, the story continued and, and the tensions uh, continued to flare and the partisanship really was exacerbated um, by a number of different events, um, including events that unfolded on the world stage. Uh, you know, throughout the 18th century and into the early 19th century, it seemed as if Britain and France, the world's two greatest superpowers at the time, were almost perpetually at war. And uh, we... Uh, engaged in, in something of a, a rapprochement with Great Britain um, when President Washington decided to sign uh, the Jay Treaty, uh, which resolved some of the unsettled questions that remained after the War for Independence. Um, it seemed to establish almost an alliance with Great Britain um, at the expense of France. We, of course, with France, we had already an alliance dating back to the time of the American Revolution. Um, France had undergone its own revolution um, since that time, and uh, and the French Revolution was something that the Federalists were, were very hostile to. Um, maybe not initially, when all Americans greeted it as sort of a, an affirmation that we had um, taken steps in the right direction um, for the French to declare their commitment to liberty and fraternity and equality and to overthrow their king, you know, so soon after we had overthrown ours was a joyous event for, for Americans. But pretty quickly, the French Revolution started to spiral out of control. And, uh, and the, the Hamiltonian Federalists were very quick to distance themselves from that and express their hostility to that. Um, while the Jeffersonian Republicans were associated with it. Jefferson, of course, had been our ambassador to France at the very beginning of the French Revolution. And a Francophile. Yeah, he, I mean, I think it's fair to say, I'm not sure if that's the right way to think of it. Okay. Um, at least in my mind, and maybe I'm drawing too fine a distinction here, Rather than thinking of the, the, the Jeffersonian Republicans as being pro-French um, and the Federalists as being pro-British, maybe it's more useful to think of the Republicans as being anti-British and the Federalists as being anti-French. Um, in, in other words, I'm not sure that Jefferson and Madison, his chief political ally, were motivated so much by an attraction to French revolutionaries. Um, I think they were motivated more by um, sort of a revulsion of this British system of government from which they had just declared their independence. Um, in some ways, they viewed the Jay Treaty and the Federalists um, as 
counter-revolutionaries, as people who wanted to turn back the clock and undo some of the gains of the American Revolution. The, the Federalists, meanwhile, um, saw Jefferson and Madison not so much as authentic American revolutionaries. They cast them as, as French revolutionaries in the newspapers. Um, and in the run-up to um, both the election of 1796 and the election of 1800, Thomas Jefferson is oftentimes described as being un-American, as being somebody who is radical, somebody who is dangerous. Um, the, the president of Yale, a man named Timothy Dwight, um, gave a sermon um, saying that if Jefferson were elected president, um, the Bible would be cast into a bonfire. Uh, our children would be wheedled or terrified into singing heretical hymns. Um, and all of our wives and daughters would be made the victims of legal prostitution. And, you know, these are some pretty crazy sounding charges. But when you... It's tailor-made for a political ad. It's, it is. It's perfect for a political ad. Um, if, if, if they had television back then, um, we, we'd have some fantastic uh, uh, specimens in our archives. But, you know, his charges are uh, echoing some of the events of the French Revolution and trying to connect Thomas Jefferson um, to the excesses there. The, the presumption was if Jefferson becomes president, we may have our own reign of terror. And you've made uh, strong references to it, but what was the, the rhetoric presumably was not coming from Adams or Jefferson directly. It was coming from their proxies. Yeah, very true. Um, Hamilton um, was a prolific writer uh, for the, the Federalists. Um, James Madison um, was encouraged by Thomas Jefferson to, uh, uh, in, in one letter Jefferson wrote to Madison, uh, pick up your pen, dear sir, and tear Hamilton to pieces in the face of the public. Um, Jefferson was reacting to uh, an essay penned by Hamilton that he thought was particularly um, egregious. It's worth noting, though, that Hamilton wouldn't sign his name to any of these essays. He wrote under various pseudonyms. The same was true of Madison. And of course, it's not just these leading figures, but a, a whole constellation of partisan writers um, who engaged in, in combat, really, in the public prints. Was there a, a reason why Madison would not Put his name on things. It would you. You might think that at that time, that Madison, somebody who had such a strong role in the authoring of the Constitution, and having viewed Jefferson as sort of somebody who was a fellow traveler, might have thought, well, I, people need to know that this is James Madison saying these things. Well, it's a great question, but but of course, it's worth noting that the political culture back then was quite different than than it is today. Um, the presumption was um, that if someone were to attach his name to a political argument, that argument would, would lose some of its authority, um, in, in part because the person who attached his name would be thought to perhaps be advancing himself instead of the argument that he was making. And so oftentimes you saw pseudonyms. Uh, you know, for example, Madison and Hamilton with Jay together wrote as Publius in support of ratification of the Constitution. It's worth noting, too, that, you know, Jefferson's great um, contribution to uh, American um, 
political literature and philosophy is the Declaration of Independence. It wasn't until the election of 1796 that he became generally publicly known as the draftsman of the Declaration. Um, the, the reason being that um, not only was the Declaration a corporate document, it was the, the, the pronouncement of the Continental Congress, um, but if Jefferson's name were attached to it, um, I think it would probably compromise Jefferson's viability as um, a statesman who could be thought to be disinterested and advancing ideas rather than himself. But in 1796 and in 1800, when the Federalists are uh, claiming that Thomas Jefferson is un-American, what better retort than to say, no, Jefferson invented America. Jefferson, it was his hand that drew the Declaration of, of Independence. Um, and, and so that's when he began to gain fame as the, uh, the person who filled that role. So let's talk about the outcome of that election. Jefferson wins. What was the breakdown and what were some of the key factors that led to his election? So, you know, it's, it, Jefferson does win. It's maybe not quite that simple um, because in the Electoral College, of course, Thomas Jefferson ties. Um, we could say that John Adams comes in third. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and his running mate, Aaron Burr, receive an equal number of electoral votes. And again, uh, prior to the passage of the 12th Amendment in 1804, um, that meant that this was going to be an election decided by the House of Representatives. Um, it, the lame duck, Federalist-controlled House of Representatives that had been elected in 1798, at the height of what was known as the quasi-war that erupted um, in part due to France's response to the Jay Treaty between the United States and Great Britain. Um, to be associated in 1798 with France was a great political liability. Um, and the Federalists had gained, uh, you know, tremendously from from their association uh, with, with, with Britain. Um, so this Congress that was decidedly not Republican um, got to choose between these two Republicans, between Jefferson, between Aaron Burr. The first instinct of members of Congress, um, Federalists, was that Thomas Jefferson, this man who for the better part of 10 years they'd, they'd been excoriating, this man they'd been criticizing as radical, as two-faced, uh, as a demagogue, um, that, that the, the lesser of two evils would be Aaron Burr. And that perhaps Aaron Burr, who had murkier principles, um, would be more malleable. Perhaps he would owe the Federalists. Perhaps he would work with the Federalists. Perhaps he would govern as a Federalist. And and so the uh, the, the members of Congress uh, were tending toward supporting Burr. Ironically, um, I mean, this is almost like a climactic end of a film. Um, who was it who interceded in Jefferson's behalf and urged the Federalists in Congress to support Thomas Jefferson, but Jefferson's arch nemesis, Alexander Hamilton. And, and Hamilton focused his efforts uh, in particular on the lone congressman from uh, the state of Delaware, a man named James Baird. Um, when voting on the president as members of Congress, they voted as state delegations. Each state had an equal say. So, you know, Baird controlled the vote of Delaware as its uh, lone representative. Hamilton wrote to uh, Baird in January of 1801. Uh, and said, uh, among other things, that while Jefferson has principles with which we disagree, 
Burr has no principles whatsoever. And if we elect Burr, we are going to be responsible for whatever mistakes he makes. If, if we acquiesce to the election of Jefferson, the Federalists will remain without stain, and the Republicans will own whatever errors he might produce. <clears throat> I can hear that. I can hear echoes of that absolutely today. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I think you could. I think you could. The outcome of that election in the House was that Jefferson won? That's right. And I think that was in accordance with the preferences of, of the people who elected the electors, um, the members of the state legislatures, or in some states, the, uh, the voters who cast their votes for Republican electors who you know, advanced both their party's vice presidential and presidential um, candidates. So, so things ended up as, as people intended. Jefferson was president. Burr was the vice president. Um, and Jefferson took office on March 4th, 1801. It is still the case today that uh, electors are selected by a method chosen by state legislatures. Uh, that's that right? correct. Yeah. So over time, as, as po- politics became more small d democratic, I mean, this is a, a byproduct really of some shifts in political culture during the 19th century. Um, more and more states uh, went to the method of, of electing their electors through popular elections. And, you know, indeed today, the name on the ballot is not the name of the elector. It's the name of the candidate. And electors have been rendered, um, they've been, you know, kind of muted in this process. You don't know the name of the elector you're electing. What ought to be said about the term of uh, Thomas Jefferson from 1800 or 1801 to early 1805? I I think uh, it was one that reassured um, a number of people, including a number of Federalists. When you think about the the heat that went into the election of 1800 and the dire prophecies um, that were pronounced by Federalists, you know, all these terrible things would happen if Jefferson were elected president. Um, Those things didn't come to pass. Um, When Jefferson took uh, the oath of office, he gave a speech, uh, his first inaugural address, um, that declared famously, we are all Federalists, we are all Republicans. Um, interestingly, I think many people heard that um, as a statement of bipartisanship. He actually, in the manuscript of, of the speech, lowercase the R in Republican and lowercase the F in Federalist, he may well have been talking more about our shared principles um, and our commitment to a federal-style government. Um, But Jefferson uh, did not unleash a reign of terror in America. Um, It it became very difficult for the Federalists, who themselves um, had engaged in some pretty um, extraordinary political measures during the Adams administration, you know, one being the Sedition Act of 1798. Um, The the First Amendment that had been ratified in just 1791 began, you know, with the words, Congress shall make no law. And yet in 1798, this Federalist Congress makes a law that uh, allows people to be jailed for for political statements that they make. Um, Jefferson described the Adams administration privately as a a reign of witches. Um, Well, that reign came to an end. And I think by contrast, um, the the Jefferson administration was, in in some respects, uh, fairly conciliatory. And, and fairly harmonious. Um, he did make some bold steps. Uh, Jefferson slashed the federal workforce. 
He repealed all internal taxes. During the course of his two terms, he paid down the national debt by one-third. Um, all this while still buying Louisiana um, in 1803, which was um, you know, one of the chief achievements of his presidency, uh, a very popular one, and uh, you know, an action that I think sealed the deal on his reelection in 1804. And Louisiana was a fairly large chunk of land it, at this it, time. It doubled the size of the United States. And it's worth saying it doubled the size of the United States for $15 million for about three cents an acre without firing a single shot. Um, you know, most empires are acquired through conquest. Um, this is acquired by, by contract, by the ratification of a treaty um, on the part of the Senate, um, a treaty that was funded by the House of Representatives. Jefferson did have some constitutional um, concerns about the acquisition of Louisiana. He noted privately to members of his cabinet that the Constitution did not um, explicitly grant the national government the power to add new territory. Um, his response was to quietly draft uh, a constitutional amendment that would explicitly authorize the acquisition of Louisiana. And yet, you know, his trusted advisors, uh, Albert Gallatin, his Treasury Secretary, and James Madison, the Secretary of State in his administration, they talked Thomas Jefferson out of it. Um, you know, if we delayed, um, perhaps France would renege on the deal. If uh, if we sent this out to the states, perhaps we would fail to secure the necessary three quarters um, to to ratify the amendment. And the opportunity to to double the size of the United States, the opportunity to add land to the West that, in some measures, would almost act as a land moat, insulating us from the problems of Europe. If we didn't control that territory, somebody else would. Um, that might lead us to war. Um, war was something to be avoided um, at nearly all costs, if possible. Um, it would also provide a, a new and growing nation, a nation with a population that doubled every 20 years, with the space to spread out, to maintain our, our lives as a nation of, of farmers. Um, you know, who were self-sufficient, self-reliant. Americans largely were their own bosses if they were white, if they were free. Over this same time period, the United States is adding states. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I have actually held in my hands the land grant that, that essentially created Kentucky. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, Kentucky is added to the Union. Vermont is, is added to the Union. Ohio will be added to the Union during Jefferson's presidency. Um, so America very much is this young and growing nation um, that Jefferson describes as, his, uh, as an empire of liberty, um, a, a nation that is expanding due to the consent um, of, of the people of the continent. You could problematize that sentiment, by the way. I mean, you could uh, reflect on the fact that um, there are people living on the land that is added to the United States um, who perhaps are not consenting um, to their new association with the government of the United States. I'm speaking of, of the various Indian nations. Um, but, but that aside, Jefferson is uh, excited to see the United States grow um, in a peaceful way, um, in, in, in a way that will kind of extend the hegemony of our Republican ideas across the continent. From George Washington's election to the election of 1804, you talked about the, these parties emerging uh, factions. Um, but was there a changing attitude about what it meant to stand for election as president? I think there was. And I think this is one of the reasons why politics were so heated during this period. 
the the rules of political engagement were changing. Um, the fact that we have uh, the development of this two-party system, um, this competitive electoral process, uh, meant that some of the old norms and some of the old practices that you know went all the way back to the colonial period um, were beginning to fall by the wayside. If if before it had been enough um, for people to allow their names to be put forward, and for voters to elect people based on assumptions about their character and their judgment and their ability to make decisions um, that you know were for the best of 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 the people who elected them. Increasingly, um, issues are at stake. Increasingly, ideology is dividing um, Americans. Increasingly, foreign policy is dividing Americans. Uh, contested ideas about the meaning of the Constitution divide Americans, and a lot is at stake. I mean, remember, these are people who risked their lives and their fortunes and their sacred honor, as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, um, to fight a revolution, to overthrow the British government in America and establish their own independent governments, the third United States. Um, so to put at risk this experiment um, was was a dicey proposition. Again, Republicans thought that Federalists were in, in some ways counter-revolutionaries, crypto-monarchists, people who wanted to um, reinstall in America a British-style government. Federalists feared that Jeffersonian Republicans were French revolutionaries, people who wanted to, to take the fragile American experiment, um, break it and remake it in a French mold. Um, and, and so a lot was at stake. And the, the members of the parties didn't recognize really the legitimacy of their opponents. Um, the notion that each side seemed to have is, we're the real Americans. The other side is a faction. Again, echoes of today. Yeah, perhaps. And that's a disturbing thing. I mean, I think, you know, for, for the longest time, you could say that in American history, um, political parties, they, they may have uh, engaged in heated arguments. But they, deep down, recognized the legitimacy of the other side. Um, there was a notion that perhaps we disagree, um, but we all share some of the same end goals. Um, the debates were about process, um, about the means, but not the ends. And it may be the case that politics today are beginning to approach uh, the fevered pitch that existed in the early days of the republic. So as we approach the election of 1804, how was that election different than uh, previous presidential elections? In some ways, there weren't that many changes. In some ways, the characterizations of Thomas Jefferson on the part of the Federalists uh, remain the same. They still uh, characterized Jefferson as being um, partial toward France. They still characterized Thomas Jefferson as being radical. Um, they still sometimes characterized Jefferson as being irreligious. On the issue of slavery, um, Federalists struck pretty opportunistic poses in the South. Federalists criticized Jefferson as an opponent of slavery. In the North, Federalists criticized Jefferson as a slaveholder. Um, but these charges lacked some of the punch that they possessed in 1796 and 1800 because Jefferson by then was a known quantity. Jefferson had been governing for four years. Um, 
people didn't have their heads chopped off um, by guillotines on American streets. Uh, you know, we, we did not plunge into a reign of terror. The economy was, was humming along. Um, Louisiana had been added. Um, people saw that their internal taxes had been repealed. Um, there was a lot to like about Thomas Jefferson. And amazingly, in the election of 1804, um, Jefferson only lost two states in their entirety, uh, Delaware and Connecticut. Um, but Massachusetts, which had been sort of the, the, the locus of federalism in America, the Federalist Death Star, right, voted for Thomas Jefferson. I mean, this is really uh, an incredible accomplishment on the part of the Jeffersonian Republicans. And Jefferson was reelected in a landslide. What, do we, what should we take away from his second term? In many respects, Jefferson's second term can be described as as many second presidential terms. It wasn't as good as his first. Uh, generally, the verdict of history is that it was in Jefferson's first term that his greatest accomplishment, the Louisiana Purchase, um, was made. It's in his second term um, that the most controversial act of his administration, um, the embargo of all international trade, um, unfolds. Jefferson's embargo is an attempt to avoid war with Great Britain and France. If during his first term, um, the actions of the Adams administration to settle the quasi-war with France had uh, created a relative degree of international harmony, things began to heat up again um, by Jefferson's second term. Um, American uh, shipping to both Britain and France was being questioned by Britain and France, who were at war. Um, Britain didn't want us selling our goods to France. France didn't want us selling our goods to Great Britain. American ships were being attacked on the high seas. And uh, should we go to war with Britain? Should we go to war with France? Um, I, I mean, this was these were questions being asked, and and Jefferson's answer was maybe we should go to war with with no one. Um, if necessary, maybe we should withhold all of our trade, keep our ships in our own ports, keep them out of danger, avoid uh, situations that would plunge us into a war for which we're uh, not prepared and which we might not win. You focus primarily in your book on these three major elections for uh, Thomas Jefferson, but what happens in 1808, or what what are we left with by 1808, and what has uh, given us, uh, or or what did Jefferson's time in office and his fights, political fights, give us in 1808? It's it's remarkable because I think oftentimes people describe the embargo as being tremendously unpopular. Um, it's certainly very controversial. It certainly has uh, a harsh impact upon both um, northeastern shipping as well as uh, southern export agriculture. Uh, and yet, the Federalists were really beginning to disintegrate. Um, eight years of Jefferson uh, in office um, really had left the Federalists, I think, in a good deal of, of disarray. Um, James Madison, Jefferson's hand-picked successor, um, was put forth as the Republican candidate in 1808. Uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, the uh, the Federalist of South Carolina, was put forth as his opponent, and uh, you know Madison won um, convincingly, not quite the landslide of 1804, um, but the Republicans, uh, you know, won convincingly in 1808, 
And Jefferson was able to retire to Monticello knowing that his best friend, his closest ally, um, was now at the helm of the ship of state. Was Jefferson involved in government beyond that? Not so much. I mean, you know, Jefferson had the luxury of knowing that James Madison, you know, with whom he had been friends since 1776, uh, a man he he trusted, a man uh, who, who knew him and who, he, he certainly knew Madison's mind. Um, he felt as if he was leaving the government in good hands. There's a, a story um, recorded by a woman named Margaret Baird Smith, who was the wife of um, Samuel Harrison Smith, the editor of the chief Republican newspaper of Washington, D.C. At the reception following Madison's inauguration, she saw Thomas Jefferson and she approached him. She said he had a big smile on his face um, and, and she addressed him. She said, um, you know, sir, you look much relieved. And his response was, I am, and I am much happier than my friend. Um, in other words, he had passed the, the torts to James Madison, as well as the burden of office. And Jefferson now could return to Monticello um, and all of the pursuits of, of his retirement. Thomas Jefferson's retirement provides a lot of fodder for people to argue about, you know, the kind of man that he was and what kind of image he cared about leaving. He advertised slaves in newspapers, and uh, a lot of people were concerned, like, you know, for somebody who had written these grand documents, who had uh, articulated a vision for essentially all of humanity in a way, sort of just, you know, recedes and becomes part of the mainstream. And so what, what should we take away from his retirement? Well, when, when Jefferson retires to Monticello, he is retiring to a working plantation, um, a series really of, of plantations. He had farms scattered you know, throughout Abermole County in, in Virginia. Um, he is surrounded by slavery his entire life. Um, his first memory um, as a young child is being carried on a pillow and looking up into the face of one of his family's slaves, of a man enslaved by his family. Um, at the time that he wrote that all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence, um, he was the owner of 200 men and women and children of generations of, of people of African descent um, who had been brought against their will to America. Um, Jefferson has, in, in many respects, um, a, a relatively good record opposing slavery as uh, in, in, through politics, through political efforts. His first public act in 1769 is to pro propose a law that would have made it legal for people to emancipate their, their slaves. That was voted down. Um, he, in the Declaration of Independence, included uh, a, a paragraph um, among the grievances listed against George III um, was King George's acquiescence to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, that was struck from the Declaration, you know, at the behest of the representatives of South Carolina and Georgia. Essentially, they said, if this remains in, you could count us out. So from the moment of America's birth, uh, the issue of slavery possessed the potential to, to threaten the American Union. And, and, and that is sort of always over, hanging over the, the heads of America. Americans. In the 1790s, um, Thomas Jefferson uh, sort of allows the, the slave issue to fall by the wayside. 
he and Madison and, and other Republicans feel as if the freedom of white people in America is at stake, that, that the Federalists want to roll back the gains of the American Revolution, um, that, that they want to impose upon Americans and extend this reign of witches, as he described the Adams administration. So it was important for him to keep together his national political alliance, which of course had its basis of support in the South. Um, and yet, he, he proposes as governor of Virginia um, a bill for gradual emancipation. As president, at the first constitutionally allowable moment in 1808, he signs into law uh, a bill that ends the transatlantic slave trade. As he's uh, retired, he's oftentimes um, you know, greeted by visitors and correspondents um, who are very much concerned about the issue of slavery, which is growing um, in the national consciousness. Uh, and, and by that point in Jefferson's life, his, uh, his attitude is, is that he's pretty much done all that he can do. Um, by this point in, in his life, it's perhaps worth noting he's in deep debt, deep personal debt. Um, his slaves are largely not even his property. They're owned by his creditors. Um, they've been used as collateral, like his land. Um, after Jefferson dies in 1826, um, not only is Monticello sold, not only is all the land sold, um, but also many of his slaves are sold off um, to clear um, the debt that he has left to his, to his family. The people that he associated with and fought with, like uh, John Adams and Alexander Hamilton, well, I guess we know what happened to Alexander Hamilton, but uh, what happened to their relationship after Jefferson left office. You know, John Adams and Jefferson have this uh, sort of, the, the, I guess the modern word is their frenemies, right? I mean, they were really great friends and close allies um, when they were members of the Continental Congress. Um, they were the dynamic duo of independence. Jefferson, the pen of independence. Maybe Adams was the mouth of independence. Um, they have parallel careers. After independence is secured, they go back to their home states. They reform the laws. Uh, Adams helps uh, to write the Constitution of Massachusetts. Um, Jefferson becomes the governor of Virginia. They both uh, serve as uh, sort of diplomatic understudies to Benjamin Franklin in Paris. When Franklin goes back, Jefferson becomes our ambassador to France. Adams is elevated to the uh, post of, uh, he's our first ambassador to England. Um, they travel around Europe together. And, and yet, uh, when the Constitution is ratified, when they come back um, as Vice President, in Adams's case, or Secretary of State in Jefferson's, politics really begin to tear them apart. By the time um, Adams is defeated and Jefferson is inaugurated in 1801, um, Adams isn't even present for Jefferson's inauguration. They have no real contact um, until after Jefferson's retirement. And uh, they resume their correspondence. They start writing letters to one another. They talk about all the things that you're probably not supposed to talk about politics, religion, philosophy. They talk about history. They talk about the future. They talk about their generation and how it contrasts with the rising generation. Um, and they really leave to Americans this uh, incredibly rich correspondence um, you know, that has been collected and, and, and published. It seems pretty clear that not only are they writing to each other, but they're very much aware that um, their letters will be read by posterity. And it's, it's interesting to see these two figures, one a Federalist, the other a Republican, one a Northerner, the other a, a Southerner, um, 
try to cement the, the union that they have created, um, a union around the principles of, of liberty and self-government um, that they hoped, uh, you know, would trump some of the, the, the debates that were unfolding, um, especially the, the sectional ones that were dividing North and South, maybe slavery chief among them. Robert McDonald is author of Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's Image in His Own Time, which will be published in August by the University of Virginia Press. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.